You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, we are in uh, the Old Testament today, Second uh, Samuel, uh, one of the uh, historical books. Um, and in Second Samuel, uh, at the end of the book, there, there are a couple of chapters that are not chronological. And essentially what they are, they're not called this, but essentially what they function as are appendices. And chapter 23 is an appendix about David's mighty men, right? The gibberim, the the mighty men or the mighty warriors that uh, uh, constituted David's inner circle. Um, So as I said, this chapter isn't chronological, uh, and it it recounts events that took place at various times. Uh, We're going to look at one of the most famous stories uh, recorded in this appendix, Second um, Samuel twenty-three verses thirteen through seventeen, just five verses, but one of the one of the most powerful uh, stories about David's uh, mighty men. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, it's printed for you. The text is printed for you in the worship folder. You can follow the reading there. Uh, and I'm going to ask you, to, if you can, uh, one more time to stand. Uh, we, we do this. It's a biblical sign of respect for the speaker. Uh, the speaker is God, right? This is God's word. I'm the reader uh, only, uh, but uh, reading God's word. Second Samuel 23, verse 13 starting at verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before we start, let's pray and ask for God's presence and his power. Father, um, open my mouth to speak truthfully and with your wisdom. Open our ears and our hearts to hear what you are saying to us today through uh, the record of this long ago event. Make it real to us, Father. Change us. Change our hearts with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know what you thought um, when Robin announced uh, that uh, this morning, right before the call, that it was Volunteer Sunday, although I have an idea. 
um, if you're at all like me. Some of you were probably thinking, great, just great. Came on the wrong Sunday. All right. The pastor's going to be browbeating me or guilting me into uh, trying to serve at the church. That's not what I got up for this morning. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that way. Um, Listen, that's not going to happen. Uh, and the reason it's not going to happen is because that kind of approach, and I've, and I've sat under those sorts of approaches, guilt trips and arm twisting and brow beating, um, uh, that's not consistent with the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's not how his church operates. You know, one thing you discover as you as you begin to read the Bible, is that it's not a simple document, right? It's a very nuanced document. It has a very uh, nuanced, complex understanding of of reality, including human nature. And and the Bible makes very clear that, you know, it's not just what you do that matters to God, but why you are doing it, right? God is is, unlike us, perfectly concerned with the whole person, right? Which is uh, your actions and, the, you know, the whole motivational complex behind your actions because that's important. It's not, you know, it's not good if you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, In his book titled Vanishing Grace, uh, Philip Yancey reminds us that, that you flourish most as a human being when you're giving more than receiving and when you're serving rather than being served. Now, of course, Philip Yancey didn't come up with that. Um, He is echoing Jesus no less than six times in the Gospels, Jesus repeats this deep human truth that you don't really succeed as a person by living for yourself or amassing resources for yourself, but you succeed as a person as you, in Jesus' words, lose yourself, right? As you lose yourself in service to God and other people in God's name. Now that is, of course, Jesus at his countercultural best, right? That, that's not really consistent with the American dream, or at least how the American dream is, is interpreted by advertisers. Who in our popular culture thinks that the way to fulfillment and flourishing as a person is found in serving God and other people. Well, Christians do. We, we believe that. I was looking at the writings of uh, Catholic writer and uh, activist Dorothy Day. She was active in the uh, first part of the 20th century. And, and she used to say 
something that I I thought was profound. She used to say that Christians should live in such a way that our lives wouldn't make much sense if the gospel were not true. Christians should live in such a way that our lives wouldn't make much sense if the gospel were not true. But what I'm saying is that, while true, has to begin not with your hands, but with your heart. And, and Dorothy Day herself recognized that. She, she said the greatest challenge of the day is how to bring about a revolution of the heart. How do you do that? The only reality, the only thing that has the power to revolutionize a human heart, to to really change it, to rewire it, to, to change a person character and motivational motivations and everything from the inside out. The only thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit reveals it to a person. Laws don't do it. Education doesn't do it. Technology doesn't do it. Those are all good things. But, but, but at best, they operate from a human perspective at a, at a surface level. The gospel revolutionizes the heart. And, and that's, I, I pray and hope, what this narrative by the Holy Spirit does today with you and with me. It, because this narrative is the heart revolutionizing New Testament gospel in Old Testament clothes. So what I want to do is just unpack these five verses by asking and answering just two questions, real simple outline, simple questions, obvious questions. Number one, what motivated these three mighty men to do what they did? What motivated them? What moved their hearts to serve their king in the way they did? And then second, what should motivate you? What should move your heart as a Christian to serve your king? Okay, those are the two questions. And that's our outline. So first, what motivated the, these three mighty men in this event? Well, to answer that question, uh, we've got, you, you've got to have a little context, right? Um, what's going on here? Most scholars believe uh, that this event occurred in the early years of David's kingship. So, so Saul is dead, and uh, David's king, and... And one of the reasons why the scholars believe that this is early in David's kingship is because it's, it's, we, we all knew that the Philistines wanted to nip David's kingship in the bud. They knew David. They respected David. They feared David. And, and so it was in the Philistines' national interests to... Uh, to dethrone David as fast as they could. So in the early years of David being king, the Philistines invade Israel. 
And they occupy parts of it, including uh, what's called out here the Valley of Rephaim, and and as well uh, the city of Bethlehem, uh, David's hometown, the future birthplace uh, of Jesus. Uh, And not only did the Philistines uh, move in and occupy Bethlehem, but they established a a military garrison there. It was in some respects kind of the the, the nerve center of the Philistine military operations in that region. And in a way, probably not unlike uh, the Afghani president in the last week, David went on the run, right? As these Philistines moved in, uh, he, he, he was on the run and he went into hiding. Uh, and we certainly saw that in Afghanistan. And um, what he does uh, to hide is go to a place that was familiar to him. He'd hidden there before. Uh, you know, so m- much of David's uh, adventures uh, involved running away from Saul, right? The first king of Israel. Um, Saul, when, when it was clear that David was going to be the next king, Saul was jealous, right? And, and really went on a personal campaign to uh, r- rid uh, the world of David. And so David was often on the run from Saul and would often have to hide. And one of the places he hid was in the cave of Adullam. And so he finds himself there again now uh, with his men uh, in the cave of Adullam. And one day in this cave, David is, and it's pretty clear from the Hebrew, he's more or less just talking to himself, right? Uh, He's not talking... It's not a direct address to anyone. He just says uh, longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. There it's recorded in verse 15. Now, it's not that David didn't have water. You couldn't hide out in the desert very long unless there were water in Adullam. And we know where Adullam is, and there is water there. Um, so it's not that he needed water. It may have been that he was nostalgic about water, uh, you know, looking back, uh, th- thinking about uh, his boyhood experiences in Bethlehem and drinking a cold glass of water in uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, Some of you may have memories about something like that. But while there may be some of that, I don't think that's what's going on here. And I think it's pretty clear, right, as you sort of look at the whole story. Um, David isn't, he's talking about water, but it's it's not really about water. What David is saying is, is, and doing, is he's lamenting that he's not much of a king. hiding in a cave in his own country, right? Can't even go to his own hometown freely and get a drink. See, all of this really is, was sort of his way of, of, of expressing his frustration, his impatience, his questions to God, really, about, you know, what are you doing, God? I mean, you promised that I would be king and that I would, that I would reign in Israel over, over all the land that had been promised to Abraham uh, centuries before. And here I am in a cave. 
not ruling over uh, much uh, of anything. See, so he's, that, that's really what, what, he's, what he was expressing. It was almost probably like a prayer, right? Well, evidently, three of his uh, men overheard him talking to himself. And what did they do? Verse 16, they strap on their gear and head for Bethlehem. This is no easy trip. You know, it's not like a trip down to, you know, Starbucks. It was, Adulam is 13 miles west of Bethlehem. Excuse, excuse me, Bethlehem, is that right? Yes, Adulam is 13 miles west of Bethlehem. So um, they had a 13-mile journey uh, through occupied uh you know, Philistine-occupied territory, no less. So they, it was not just a 13-mile hike, but they had to hike surreptitiously. When they reached Bethlehem, of course, now they're at the military headquarters of the Philistines, and we're told that they had to break through the, the defenses. They had to fight through the Philistine defenses in Bethlehem, no surprise. Um, uh, and, and then they succeeded at that. They drew uh, the water, and then they had to fight their way back out of the same uh, Philistine defenses, now presumably alerted to their presence, right? And having successfully done all that, they carry the water back another 13 miles uh, and give it to David. And I'm sure somewhere along that journey, uh, given their exertions, they, that uh, they were thirsty, but they didn't drink the water. Uh, they had gone on a mission to get that water for David, for their king. We're not told, you know, a whole lot about David's reaction, especially as, as what, what he was feeling. He must have been shocked, surprised, overwhelmed, um, grateful, because he hadn't ordered them to do what they did. He, he didn't even ask them to do uh, what they did. Uh, this is a classic illustration of, you know, the, the old phrase, his wish was their command. And that's really true. Now, before you dismiss this narrative, because I expect some of you are, are, are thinking, well, you know, it's a long time ago, and this really isn't all that relevant to me because these guys are heroes, uh, and, 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 and to be the, the kind of heroes they are, you know, they, they m- m- must have had their lives all together, and I don't. Uh, and so if you're thinking that way and you're sort of checking out of this sermon or, or you know, dismissing the, the uh, application of this text to your life, you need a little more context. Back in, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, at a different time in, in David's uh, life, you, you get uh, an indication of the kind of men that David attracted, the kind of men that were uh, prone to come around David uh, and, 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 and attach themselves to him. And, and lest you think these were, you know, heroes that ha- had their lives all together, 
1 Samuel 22 tells us that uh, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented. That's a brilliant alliteration. You know, as as a preacher, I applaud that, right? Distress, debt, discontent. Hebrew, bitter in soul. Those were the people, those were the kind of men that that gathered around David. Those were the kind of men that David attracted. So what does that tell you? It tells me, anyway, that David welcomed those people whose lives were messed up, were under pressure were unhappy. And because David did that, because David welcomed them, they loved him. And they were devoted to him. Isn't that clearly the, the motivation here? And we're, we're not told, the narrator doesn't tell us what was in these men's hearts, but it's pretty clear that, that, that what was motivating these men was that they were simply loyal to David. They were devoted uh, to, to David. Uh, right? it's, if there was ever a great living illustration of chesed, at that great Hebrew word that's so hard to, to uh, translate, uh, it, it can mean loyal love or devoted love, covenant love. Uh, th- this is it, right? I mean, these guys had chesed toward uh, David. They were, it was a loyal, devoted love uh, for David. Uh, and so that's really the answer to the first question. What, what, mo- what motivated these three mighty men? Their loyalty uh, and devotion to David because David graciously welcomed them when they weren't worthy of the welcome. Right? And that that gracious welcome revolutionized their hearts and and gave them a level of devotion or loyalty such that they would serve David without him even asking. Right? Okay? So that's there we are. That's the first question. Now let's bring this home. Let's bring this home to you and me where we live with the second question. What should motivate you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? What should motivate you to serve him uh, and other people in his name? Well, let me start answering that by asking you another question. A little bit of a provocative question, but I want you to think about it. Was was the loyalty that these three men gave to David misplaced? Was it misplaced? Now, at one level, I think the knee, the knee jerk reaction to that question is no. I mean, this is this is David. This is King David, and he and he, uh, uh, you know, he did. He welcomed these men when they were uh, in distress and in. Death and and discontented, um, and he was a good leader. Um, 
course their loyalty wasn't misplaced. But actually, I would suggest to you that the text forces us to say yes. Their, their loyalty ultimately was misplaced. David didn't deserve that level of loyalty by these men. And, and the text gives us two reasons. Um, actually, one, one reason's in the text. One reason isn't in the five verses we read, but it's in, the, it's in chapter 23. If, if you have a Bible, you can, you can look at the full chapter of 23. And essentially what it is, is, is a list of David's mighty men. 37 names. And, and that list is occasionally broken by very brief vignettes of, of their exploits. Right? And we're looking at probably the most famous uh, of those vignettes. But essentially it's a list. It's a list of names. And uh, so let me just read to you the last three verses of chapter 23. Again, remembering it's, it's, he's, these are the names of his mighty men. Zelek the Ammonite, Naharai Abeorot, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. That is a piece of, of composition genius, right? To list these names, right? You're, you're reading chapter 23. You're going down this way, and what would otherwise be just sort of a boring list of names is, is inspiring, right? Because you're hearing about this, some of the exploits of these men, and you're becoming excited and inspired uh, by them and their, their loyalty to David. And then just like... You know, pouring cold, you know, just like pouring cold water on you, just like tripping a fire alarm. That last name brings a halt to the whole thing. Uriah the Hittite. If you remember, and some of you will remember, some of you may not, Uriah the Hittite was the man that David betrayed brutally betrayed and ultimately uh, had killed in order that he could, so, so David could procure Uriah's wife for himself. One of the lowest, lowest points of, of David's life and it was at the expense of his, one of his most loyal men. Right? These are the men most loyal to David. But this list, when, it, when, when, when we read Uriah the Hittite at the end, is communicating in no uncertain terms, understand, friends, these are loyal men, but David was not as loyal to his men as they were to him. Okay. To David's credit, the second reason we know that the loyalty of the three men was misplaced is David admits it. 
It's, it's really his, he, he makes an admission of it in verses 16 and 17, right? He doesn't drink the water. This has confused a lot of people, offended a lot of people, right? What? What is David doing? These guys go off, do this amazing thing without even being asked, and they bring him the water, and he doesn't even drink it. He just pours it out in the desert. What, what, what kind of an ingrate is David? Right? I mean, you, you, you're sort of, in, you know, it's easy to read it that way, to react to it that way, but that's not what's going on, right? There aren't many words here, so every word really counts, right? Understand, David isn't just, you know, being an idiot or jerk or, or ungrateful and just, oops, you know, pouring it out. What's it say? He pours it out to the Lord. See, this is, this is religious language. This is, this is temple language. This is sacrificial language. David is, this is, this is, what this is describing is that David has taken this water and made it a drink offering to the Lord. You read about drink offerings in the Old Testament. That's what this, David made this thing. He's, he's, he takes this as, as a gift and, he, and then he in turn gives it to the Lord and says only the Lord is worthy of this kind. I mean, this, this water is a, you know, represents a, a, a level of devoted service that I, I am not worthy of. Only the Lord is worthy of that kind of of dedication and and loyalty, right? They risked their lives for it, and David knew he wasn't worth it. And being David, right, he knew who was worth it, right? And that's the one to whom he gave the water. He, he turned in worship to the Lord who was worthy of this, the, this kind of service. So you see at the end of the day, right, when we're looking at this f- story, clearly David is not the hero. And, and the author, both the way he drafts this little story in five verses and the way he ends chapter 23 is making it very clear to you that you are not to walk away thinking that David is the hero of this story. But in fact, also, not even the three mighty men are the heroes of this story. And we know that, the author communicates that also clearly in, in two ways. First of all, he doesn't give us their names. Right? They're anonymous. They're... Th- Three of the 37, but we don't know which three. Could have been Uriah, could have been one of them. We don't know. They're anonymous. And then the other thing the author does here is he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we get no details of their exploits, right? Zero. Were you frustrated by that? I mean, you know, we're given enough to know this is a great story, right? I could, you know, give me these five verses, let me take them to a a screenwriter and a cinematographer in L.A., and we could come up with a pretty good action movie, right? 
Right? It just begs to have right, the, 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 the blanks filled in. You, and, and, and it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be so far from the truth. This is a, an amazing, dramatic story. But the author says, nope, I'm not going to tell you any of that because I don't want you to walk away from this story thinking that they're the heroes. Why is it, what's the author doing? He's, he's communicating that the real hero of this story is the one to whom David and these three anonymous warriors pointed forward to. And here, as I show you how they do that, I am indebted to uh, Ed Clowney. Many of you here at New Life know Ed Clowney. Um, Ed was a preaching professor. He was a pastor. He was the former president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, um, faculty member at Westminster Seminary, California, here in Escondido, um, pastor here at New Life. And Ed Clowney taught me, uh, and he taught generations of preachers how to understand and preach this story. There is not a pastor in Presbyterian or, and Reformed circles who does not preach on this text without shamelessly ripping off Ed Clowney. Ed, Ed, and, and the honest ones will admit it. And, and so I'm admitting it to you. This is, this is our brother Ed's great thinking on this. I mean, you know, he... Um, he, he had a, a, just a spirit-inspired insight into God's word and how it points to Jesus, right? And, and so, right, in his role as king of Israel, that's what David was, David, in that role as king, points us to Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus is the king of kings and, and the Lord of lords. It's to King Jesus Great David's greater son, that you and I bring the water of our spontaneous devotion and service. Right? King, King Jesus, not, not King David. And in fact, Jesus looks for your devotion. There's, there's, a, there's an account in the Gospels about Jesus one time healing ten lepers at the same time. Remember that story? And and um, and after he healed the ten lepers, only one of them returned to fall on the ground before Jesus and praise him and thank him for what he had done. And do you remember what Jesus said? Where are the other nine? Now what's interesting is that Jesus didn't tell them or even ask them to come back and thank him. In fact, he had given them an order. He said, now that I've healed you, you go to the priest and and be declared clean uh, by the priest. But the friends, listen, true devotion doesn't wait to be asked, right? The mighty men didn't wait to be asked. They just acted. That's what Jesus was looking for, that, that unasked for spontaneous devotion. 
That one guy, right, running on his way to the priest says, wait a minute. I've got to thank the one who did this for me. And you know, one of the most amazing things is that, you know, just like King David took the water from the men and turned around and gave it to God, so, so does Jesus Christ, who's not just your king, Christian, but he's also your high priest, as, as Robin read today. He's our priest, and, and as our priest, Jesus takes our devotion, turns around and takes our devotion to God. It says um, that um, he offers our prayers up as incense in the sanctuary of heaven. You know, when I think about, think about myself, right? My, my inconsistent, wandering, mind-wandering, half-hearted prayers offered up in my small faith, those prayers are picked up by Jesus and become incense in the sanctuary of heaven. I mean, how freeing is that? How, how much does that make you want to pray? if I know that my prayers are going to be perfected by my priest. He takes my poor, your poor, incomplete acts of service and devotion to God. You know, we all do this, grandparents, right? Parents, right? We We take the poor, incomplete work of our kids, right? And we frame it and hang it in prominent places in our houses and offices and uh, on our refrigerators, right? Right. In a similar way, God takes our incomplete, imperfect acts of devotion to him, acts of devotion to others in his name, and Jesus takes those and presents them as sacrifices well-pleasing to his Father. Right? My, in, my imperfect acts become ex- well-pleasing to the Father because they come through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus to God. You see, you hearing that? You hear how freeing that is? And Jesus is also not just your king, not just your priest, but he's your warrior king, right? Like the mighty men, Jesus breaks through enemy lines, but not Philistine lines. They're the enemy lines of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemy lines of your sin, your, your guilt, and your shame. And, and breaking through those lines, Jesus brings you the water of life. Living water. We've already talked about how the water brought to David was brought at the risk of his men's life. But the cup that Jesus brings to you was not at the risk of his life. It was at the price of his life. In love, Jesus lived and then laid down his life for you. The cup he gives you after crashing through those enemy lines of your sin, your guilt, and your shame, the cup he gives you is the new covenant, the new oath-bound promise in his blood. 
That's a covenant that won't be broken. That's a covenant that cannot fail because it's sealed by the infinitely effective sin-covering, shame-shredding, guilt-destroying blood of Jesus. There's power in the blood. And finally, of course, unlike David who was imperfectly loyal to his loyal men, Jesus is unfailingly loyal to you even when you aren't loyal to him. You know, chesed in the Bible is almost 99% it applies to God's relationship to you. Not your relationship to God. Not your relationship to one another. It's, it's described, Hesed is describing the loyal love, the devoted love of God for you. So Jesus is with you and he will stay with you. And unlike David, he won't betray you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Christian friends, remember your past is paid for and your future is guaranteed. It's these gospel truths that this Old Testament story tells us that revolutionizes our hearts, rewires our hearts. Nothing else, nothing else in the world will do this. This is our treasure. Only the church of Jesus Christ has this treasure. Don't look in empty cisterns, right? Don't look in empty barrels for answers and for power, for real change, right? The world will take you to, you know, education or technology or popularity or beauty. You're only going to get it in Jesus, And, and that's why here on Volunteer Sunday, before you go out to the patio, I'm not going to twist your arms uh, and I'm not going to guilt you into signing up to serve here. What I am going to do and what we're going to continue to do here at New Life is point you to Jesus and his amazing devoted love for you. We are determined to know nothing among you like Paul, other than Jesus Christ and him crucified for you, right? That salvation that ensures that you will know peace, that you will know security, that you will know fulfillment, that you will know pleasures at his right hand forever. It's as we look together, as 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 we allow God's word and the Holy Spirit to 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 fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to turn us into spontaneously devoted people. People desiring to serve the God who serves us so well. Man, at the end of the day, surprise, it's all about Jesus and it's all for Jesus. All right? Last word, close with this. Don't think, as I do, and I, th- I think our culture forces us to think this way sometimes, and I, I do. In fact, as I was doing this sermon, I thought this. This is why I added this P.S. 
Don't think that your devotion to the Lord has to be demonstrated by you doing something radical and heroic. Right? I don't want you to be dissuaded from doing something here because you think in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. Listen, Christian friends, the reality is that our devotion to Jesus, which is in response to his, his unfailing devotion to us, is is more like our devotion to our spouses. If you married people, perhaps can relate to this, right? There's, there's, you know, the, the radical and the heroic may happen, but it's always exceptional. I mean, I love to think of myself as, you know, Linda's, you know, knight in shining armor. I haven't had a lot of knight in shining armor moments. In, in 40 plus years of marriage, right? Our, our devotion is, is, is shown in countless, countless tiny ways, right? And God has a soft place in his heart for the tiny over the large any day. Any day. I think about my former church up in Orange County. We, we, there was a guy there that was well known in the community. He was a highly placed executive at a very well known public company. Uh, was in often quoted, uh, made a lot of money. Um, was important because of his position in the community. He was also one of my clients. Um, but I and and he was a member. He with his wife were, were members of our church. And but every Sunday, and and he he was committed to this. Every Sunday, he said, "I want to put the green apron on, and I want to be in charge of serving coffee." And I think, in a sense, he he knew that his position and all the the press was that was sort of distancing himself, and maybe maybe people were putting him up on a pedestal he knew he shouldn't have been put up on. So, man, he put that green apron on and, and, and would just serve coffee and talk to everybody, right? That's what I'm talking about. It's just the tiny things. In Mark 14, when you know, Jesus was at a dinner party at Simon's house and it, and it got rudely interrupted by a woman who, who came in with this little jar of, of perfumed ointment, and she cracks it open and pours it on Jesus' head. And you can imagine, it was super aromatic, so you may imagine the room just fills with the aroma of this thing. And immediately, all the guests, including Jesus' disciples, started criticizing her. You know, because that perfumed ointment was worth some money. And they said, man, you should have leveraged your assets. Are you kidding? What are you doing? You should have been, you know, more tactical about this, more strategic. We could have, you know, you, you could sell it and we could have this program where we're, we're giving money and feeding the poor with it as it is. Well, all you've done is poured on Jesus' head. One and done, 15 seconds. He's dripping there, it smells. And Jesus would have none of it. He rebuked them. 
said that she would be remembered forever for this, this one act, right? And, in, and, and there's one place where it says, and the, the, all the English translations get it wrong because they don't, it's hard to translate, but literally what Jesus says is, what she had, she did. What she had, she did. And that's enough. There's power of goodness, friends, even in, maybe especially in, the small things. So may God move our hearts to, with the good news of Jesus. And, and, and as he moves our hearts, may, may we show our, our devotion to him by, by serving him and one another. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's take just a, a minute, because we're over time, um, and just, just pray silently, and I'll close this in a minute. Think, reflect on Jesus' devotion to you, how, how unfailing it is, and then ask the Holy Spirit to, to give you wisdom about what you might, how you might express your devotion in response to his devotion, whether that's here in New Life or somewhere else. Let's, let's pray together. Thank you for your devotion to us. Forgive us for our failing devotion to you. Um, Thank you for the gospel, for your life lived and your death died for us. Holy Spirit, come into our hearts and renew us. And and may we uh, live lives that are pleasing to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.